Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The South Korea DPRK summit was long on smiles. We'll discuss the aspirations for peace on the Korean Peninsula. Word has it the new film The Rider reinvents the Western. Film contributor Milo Stalik talks with the director Chloe Zhao. And on Weekend Passport, the International Voices Project. They'll bring the work of nine international playwrights here in the next month. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. The meeting between the leaders of South Korea and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea went off with precision and pomp. Here is how CNN International described it. There is Kim Jong-un. Yes. Descending the step. This is the moment we've been waiting for. He's going to walk down there, cross that sort of uh, open area there, striding out on his own. And let's just uh, embrace this moment and uh, listen. Kim Jong-un and Moon Jae-in together on the southern side. An extraordinary moment coming across, shaking hands, and then that step across the concrete. And what we're seeing there is traditional uh, guards who have greeted and they are walking towards the Peace House for the formal welcoming ceremony. Let's listen. A little sample of the ceremony this morning as South Korea and the DPRK uh, met there in the Peace House. With me is Bruce Cummings, professor of history at the University of Chicago. He's the author of The Korea War, A History. Nice to talk with you again, Bruce. Nice to see you. A lot of pomp and circumstances, a lot of precision, uh, a lot of symbolism. It was quite a show. Yeah, it was very carefully uh, choreographed. Uh, I'm sure they planned in advance uh, this business of uh, Kim crossing into the south and then holding hands with uh, President Moon and crossing back into the north. Uh, The final display was almost like the Winter Olympics uh, when there were the four of them with uh, their wives uh, sitting up there uh, and uh, fireworks going off and all of that. It it really uh, seemed to go off without a hitch. And I, I have to say it was a very impressive display. It was more... I think uh, more so than even the first summit in 2000 uh, with Kim Dae-jung and and Kim Jong-il. They even planted this pine tree, which is as old as the armistice itself. That that was quite a uh, a thing. I was surprised when I I heard about them doing this, and then I saw the size of the pine tree, and it is pretty darn big. Yeah, pine pine trees are very much a part of Korean lore, Korean culture. Uh, They have a whole variety of, of them, and there are a million songs and poems and so on about pine trees. And uh, both leaders uh, shoveled uh, d- uh, dirt or earth uh, from uh, Whitehead Mountain, Pektusan in the north, which is the sort of legendary birthplace of the Korean people, 
and Halasan, uh, Hala Mountain on Jeju Island on the south, which is uh, they're, so they're you know as far away from each other as you can get and still be in Korea, uh, and that uh, was a, a nice symbol of their their desire for reunification. What did you make of the substance of the talks? I mean, they they weren't going to come out and really end anything or or do anything that was um, denuclear uh, in nature, but uh, they did come out with a joint agreement and, and statement. What what did you make of it? Well, I was watching TV and hearing a lot of experts saying it was full of generalities but not specifics. And I, I don't really know what they're talking about because uh, there are a number of important specifics. One is to set up a liaison office in Kaesong, which is an ancient Korean capital just across the 38th parallel in the north. Uh, they are talking about a West Sea peace zone. Uh, which is very important because uh, there were clashes in 2010, 2011, where upwards of 50 people died. Uh, and the so-called Northern Limit Line, which the U.S. and South Korea established at the end of the Korean War, has never been accepted by North Korea. That's one reason that you've had these clashes over the years. Uh, to do that would be really significant. Uh, they talked about uh, reopening the rail line that used to go from Seoul to the Chinese border actually goes all the way to Europe if you take the Trans-Siberian as people could back in the 1930s. Uh, and also talking about um, uh, the rail line on the east that goes up into uh, Siberia. Uh, I think one of the most important things is that they vowed to get busy with a 2007 agreement, uh, which was at the second summit to open uh, export zones in the ports of Heju and Nampo, which sort of go around the southwest side of North Korea. Uh, and that's always been the wealthiest part of, of northern Korea. Uh, and it fits very nicely with President Moon's overall goal, which is to embark on rebuilding the North Korean economy and, and bringing the North out of its isolation. I've talked to, I mean, one of my old friends was just sitting in the room uh, today with the two leaders. He's a an advisor to President Moon, and and uh, he's told me that President Moon's overall goal, his most important goal, is is uh, uh, to uh, open the North's economy and and sort of step by step rebuild it with roads and rails and things like that. How delicate an issue is that for South Korea with the United States? The U the U.S. probably does not want to see economic things go on before the denuclearization. Um, do, is President Moon really just kind of waving the, um, the the goal here in front of North Korea? Well, he's been driving this process uh, from the beginning. He he's the one really who arranged uh, the summit between Kim and and Trump. If, if indeed it it comes off, uh, I think that he and and Kim Jong Un uh, are quite committed to doing things themselves without letting the U.S. get in the way, and that will cause a lot of friction particularly with people like John Bolton who think that North Korea's, you know, the best thing to do with North Korea is to get rid of it. Uh, then there's the problem of sanctions. North Korea is now more sanctioned than it's ever been. Uh, even some of the things that were exchanged at the, uh, at the summit uh, are sanctioned. <laughs> so it, it's very hard to see how this can proceed without lifting some of the sanctions. And the U.S. is not going to do that unless North Korea takes very serious steps at denuclearization. 
that was the last item uh, on on their joint statement was denuclearization, and that's going to be, of course, the hardest uh, the hardest thing to accomplish. There's been a lot of discussion about what each side means by denuclearization, and President Moon stated very clearly that he and North Korea felt the same way about this right before the summit. But in the U.S., there's a lot of commentators who say they mean two different things. Well, if you had asked me six months ago, would North Korea ever give up its nuclear weapons, I would have said no. Uh, But Kim Jong-un has made commitments, uh, starting with his New Year's address, uh, that go in the direction of getting rid of uh, uh, the nukes and the missiles. Uh, I know that when people get down to brass tacks and actually start negotiating, North Korea always operates on a tit-for-tat basis. They will uh, not do anything unless they're rewarded by the U.S. step by step. Uh, But, uh, you know, contrary to what many people think, North Korea did freeze all of its plutonium for eight years back in the 1990s. Uh, And I think uh, there's a momentum here that, uh, you know, it may be that Kim Jong-un is uh, really telling the truth when he says they're in a position of strength. They have demonstrated that they can make uh, huge nuclear weapons and launch uh, ICBMs that can go 8,000 miles. And as William Perry, the former defense secretary, said, I mean, we're never going to know if we've got every last nuclear weapon and missile. So there will be that ambiguity no matter how denuclearization happens. Uh, but it does seem uh, that he, he's quite serious this time. I'm talking with Bruce Cummings, professor of history at the University of Chicago, the author of The Korean War, A History, amongst other books. And if um, the United States, I mean, at the same time this is happening, we've got President Macron of France coming in and saying, well, I think Trump's going to pull out of the Iran nuclear accord. Why would the head of North Korea decide to move forward with a – with the U.S. having this mercutial kind of uh, behavior? Well, well, the next two weeks are going to be very interesting because uh, both Macron and um, you know, the German leader, Angela Merkel, are both coming to Washington with the prime goal of getting Trump to stay in the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, and it's absolutely true that, that uh, if he backs out of it, that will not give much of an incentive to North Korea to go forward with a similar deal. But North Korea has been negotiating with the U.S. over its nuclear program since 1991. There's just an enormous history. Uh, And I think the North Koreans are going to do what they want to do regardless of what happens in Iran. If they think they can get a deal out of Trump, I think they'll they'll push for it. The – I noticed that Nicholas Eberstadt had a piece in the New York Times the other day where he was really skeptical about uh, past negotiations with the North and the long history, he says, leads, should lead us all to believe that um, the North is not going to cut a deal and they're going to um, you know, back down at the last second. Uh, he uh, says that you – know, that uh, the denuclearization thing is is not uh, the same. They're not on the same page. What do you make of uh, the criticism that uh, you know that this is the sucker born every minute diplomacy that uh, he says it is? Well, I, I think uh, it's one thing for Nick Eberstadt to say this in the New York Times. I mean, I thought the I was wondering why the Times chose to run that particular piece this week. Uh, he called it a phony summit, a phony peace deal. 
said that North Korea's uh, real goal is a military takeover of, of the South as if it's still 1953. Uh, I'm, I don't know how the North is going to do that when the U.S. would nuke them if they tried it. Uh, Eberstadt wrote a book 20 years ago called The End of North Korea uh, and was one of the loudest people in the 90s uh, predicting a North Korean collapse. Uh, he sees North Korea as a little Soviet Union. He really, I, I don't think, understands North Korean history at all. Uh, but I'd like to see an op-ed from him explaining why he was so wrong 20 years ago. But the more important thing is that John Bolton, the national security advisor, uh, was interviewed by the New York Times during the Bush administration when he was uh, the ambassador to the UN. And the Times said, what is the Bush administration policies toward North Korea? And he strode over to his bookshelf, pulled off Eberstadt's book. He says, that's our policy, the end of North Korea. And it seems like uh, South Korea is very familiar with John Bolton. They, I was reading some of the South Korean papers, and they were very keen on the meeting that John Bolton had with a South Korean official uh, before the summit. They felt like uh, the South Korea was really getting its ducks in a row with this guy who, who they referred to as you know wrong about the Iraq War and sees everything as a military, uh, military issue. Well, I, I don't really have much sense of what John Bolton's role is yet in the Trump administration. They say he's being quiet and pushing papers around uh, the way – coordinating things the way a national security advisor ought to do. Uh, the real wild card is, is Donald Trump. Uh, and on the positive side, he's a maverick. He wants apparently a deal. He says he's going to end the Korean War. Uh, he has no ties to the Washington foreign policy establishment, unlike almost any previous president. And so it could be that that a, a completely unpredictable situation a year ago might uh, come forward in which Trump and, and Kim Jong-un, also a maverick, uh, would actually make a deal that would be in the interest of uh, peace in Korea. Let's talk about the idea of ending the Korean War. Uh, the Korean War ended with a armistice agreement between four armies. And uh, people say it's the hardest negotiated armistice of all time. It took two years or something to, to negotiate that. It did take two years uh, from 1951 when the war could easily have ended. Uh, you had two more years of very bitter uh, fighting in which uh, millions perhaps died uh, basically to get the deal that could have been gotten in 1951. There was supposed to be a peace treaty negotiated at Geneva uh, in 1954, John Foster Dulles was Secretary of State and he famously came to the meeting and refused to shake hands with Chinese uh, Prime Minister Zhou Enlai. Uh, and th he had no intention whatsoever of making a peace treaty. I, I actually interviewed his deputy, U. Alexis Johnson, many years ago and I said, how do you prepare for a conference when you know you're not going to do anything? And he says, oh, you get your papers together, you make sure Sigmund Rhee, the South Korean president, doesn't make a mess of things and you just go forward. Uh, and do nothing. And that's what happened. Uh, it's very unfortunate, really, but you're right. We still are, are in uh, a suspended uh, belligerency uh, on the Korean Peninsula. Do you need China to – China was a signatory uh, – to to get out of this armistice and into a peace deal, you need China, the U.S., North Korea, and South Korea? Yeah. Today there was news about either a three-way uh, conference between the U.S. and the two Koreas or a four-way conference with China, and I'm sure the latter is much more likely. Uh, I think 
Kim Jong-un was very smart to go to Beijing and make amends with uh, Xi Jinping in what was also quite a remarkable meeting uh, and uh, keep him informed. Uh, China uh, seems to be on the sidelines, uh, of course, right now, but it, it, it will be deeply involved if there is a, a peace agreement to end the armistice. Uh, what is China thinking about all this? Are they um, who did, who's, who are, Whose side are they on right now? Well, it's very uh, interesting. Uh, Kim Jong-un's, one of his most important recent statements uh, was to say to President Moon that he didn't necessarily uh, demand the withdrawal of American troops from South Korea. North Korea has been demanding that since the 1940s in their propaganda. But at the 2000 summit, uh, Kim Jong-il told the South Korean president uh, that he told him the same thing. Uh, and... I've thought for a long time going back uh, into the 90s that what North Korea wants is for the U.S. to somehow bail it out uh, after the Soviet Union collapsed. Its only big power guarantor is China. And I think it would like a situation where it could play Washington off against Beijing uh, like it did with Moscow and Beijing during the Cold War. Uh, but this idea of leaving American troops in the south while the two Koreas reconcile I think is very worrisome to China because it, it would essentially uh, keep the United States in the middle of a balance of power in Northeast Asia. And it's also, I think, deeply in the American interest uh, to do that. Uh, in 1998, when Kim Dae-jung visited Washington, uh, Secretary of Defense William Cohen said that we are going to keep our troops in Korea even after it's unified. And I remember looking at that and <laughs> reading it twice to make sure I saw it right. Nobody paid any attention to that. But that is that was certainly the goal then, and I think it's the goal today. The U.S. is not going to pull its troops out of Korea. Can China show up at armistice talks and say, we want the U.S. troops out? We're the ones who want the U.S. troops out. They can certainly say that, but I, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, what worries American officials in Washington is that if our troops are withdrawn, uh, that uh, the natural tendency would be for both Koreas to gravitate toward China and against Japan. And the whole idea of a U.S.-Japan-South Korea alliance would would go up in flames. Uh, I, I don't think that's going to happen, but that is a legitimate worry on the part of China, uh, on the part of uh, the, the U.S. I saw that Jimmy Carter said that he thinks what North Korea wants is a security guarantee. Um, is that the size of it? I think that's going to be very difficult because uh, the Clinton administration gave a security guarantee to North Korea in November uh, October, November 2000. Uh, you may remember Madeleine Albright went to uh, Pyongyang and met with Kim Jong-il at that time. And they issued a statement saying neither country would have hostile relations uh, to the other. And then in comes George W. Bush and instantly establishes hostile relations with North Korea. And I remember reading the North Korean press at the time, and they said, what, can't the U.S. keep solemn diplomatic agreements? How can they just uh, rip this up? So I don't think the North is going to be satisfied with uh, uh, just uh, words like that. I think they're probably going to demand uh, that the U.S. keep nuclear weapons away from Korea and not intimidate them with B-1 bombers from Guam, things like that, which I actually think are perfectly reasonable. You can't expect North Korea to give up its nukes if, if we're threatening them with uh, our nukes. Well, we'll see if 
all the sides can come overcome all the different uh, broken deals that they've had over the years. Bruce Cummings is professor of history uh, with the University of Chicago. He's the author of The Korean War, A History. Thanks for joining us again and talking about the summit between South Korea and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll hear about a new film that reinvents the Western. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our film contributor, Milos Stalik from Facets. Milos interviews the world's up-and-coming filmmakers here on Worldview. Today, he's talking with Chloe Zhao. Her film, The Rider, premieres today in Chicago. It tells the story of a Native American cowboy struggling with potentially having to give up his passion for rodeo after a serious injury. And one film critic says it's reinvented the Western. No more riding, no more rodeos. If you don't stop, your seizures are going to get worse. I had to sell Gus, Brady. You can't sell Gus. It's not like you can ride anymore. Who's this? That's Apollo. Wow, that's amazing. A horse that never had nobody on his back before. Where are you going with that? I'm going to the rodeo. You don't need to go ride today. I'm entered and I'm riding. Go kill yourself then. So, Chloe, the rider is kind of a big point in a very long journey from Beijing to high school in London to political science study in Massachusetts and then to the Lakota Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. So how did that journey begin and why? Oh, how long do you have? That's a long one. Well, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of similarities between Beijing, London, New York, LA, and the cities. I have always lived in cities. And then that shift was more that I wanted something different for myself at first. You like, were going to a film school in New York and then... Yeah. And you were facing making a film, like a diploma film or... Yeah, you know, it's time to make a feature after three years. I knew there wasn't one for me in New York, and I knew I, had to, I wanted to go west somewhere, somewhere on the plains, and not necessarily the desert or a mountain. I wanted to go to the plains. 
And then around that time, also, um, there was a lot of report on Pine Ridge about all the struggles young people were going through at the time. So I remember seeing a lot of images, and within those images, there's a lot of contradicting messages, quite complex and interesting. So that's how I took my first trip there. And this fascinated you, and this gradually grew into your first feature, a song my brother taught me, right? Mm-hmm, yes. What was this call to go west? I mean, this is... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's what historically what people do when they are confused about their current situation yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or they're unhappy. <laughs> uh, they go west where the sun sets. I don't know. I think growing up in Beijing, I have always fantasized about Inner Mongolia and the plains. And I have visited before uh, what it means, that kind of open space, as opposed to living in Beijing. And I feel the same way about the Dakotas when I'm in New York. And so what attracted you? Because you got to be very close to those people. They used to call you the Lakota girl with a Chinese last name, which was pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> with a weird last name. With a weird last that. name, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you stayed there, you talked to them, you got to know their stories. I mean, was this like research? Um, it was first to see, like, I, I'm out, this, this is my place you know this is a place i'm going to spend a lot of my next three years or how many however long it would take it was just see myself saturating and how i can relate to the people there because i feel like for me you always have to relate on a human being level before i can make films about them because of the political stuff and all that um i didn't really want to make a statement that wasn't the initial goal and on those journeys is when you first encountered uh, Brady Jandro, who is the rodeo cowboy, who is at the center of your new film, The Writer. I met Brady and I was immediately drawn to him and what he represents and him as an actor, his natural talent. Oh, he's a non-professional, but I thought I discovered a talented young actor in him. And then a year after I met him, he got injured at a rodeo. But I was trying different other stories on him and nothing really worked when he got injured we realized that this is a story to tell at the very beginning of the film he is this rodeo cowboy who has a very severe injury but it seems like that he's dealing with a lot of complex issues he has a sister who is disabled he has a friend who was severely injured lane who is in rehab the whole issue of his not being able to ride being told that by the doctors is a big issue for him because that's a question of his identity and then of course there's his father who is kind of this older generation so that's a lot of levels that this one character is dealing with yeah, I think young people out there, they mature pretty quickly. They get into the real world quicker than when I was growing up at his age. You know, when I shot the film, he was 21 year old. It was very young. And by the way, some of that stuff is fictionalized. His dad is pretty good dad. He's not, I mean, he made mistakes, but he's not like that in the film. You know, Lily's she just has autism, but she's the one that keeps the household together. You know, she's the one that cleans and put everybody's stuff away. So they're not really trouble to Brady. But I think that the biggest thing is his own brain injury, which is something that's not just a physical injury, but, you know, it messes with your emotions. But you said someplace that the people there don't have a lot of options and that also the hardest part for Brady in real life is when he goes to work in a drugstore. And so it's the first time that he's really in a closed, ordered environment. And so there's that option 
of keeping freedom and living off the land rather than going the traditional way. That's still an issue. Uh, hardest thing for him to film. He realized he never did. He went straight back to training horses. He rather risked his life to do that than working in the grocery store. But but that's not say it's, you know you can't work at a grocery store. It's just not for him. Right. But it was the toughest day for him to shoot because he hated being in there in the in the uniform. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Mila Stelic speaking with filmmaker Claude Zhao, whose new film, The Rider, opens today, set on the uh, Lakota Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. A lot has been made out of the film that all of the people in it are non-professional actors. And in a way, that's a kind of a false rubric because it really doesn't matter. It's really besides the point, isn't it? That's what I believe. Yeah. And just because there are elements of their life that are in the script and in the film, you know, that doesn't really mean anything, doesn't change anything. And also, I think that a lot has been said of the film is about what's been called a toxic masculinity that's in some way imparted to Brady from his father. But the film, to me, seems to be about a lot more than that. It's a lot about empathy plays a very big part in it. Yeah, uh, you know, back to your first thing you said about the actors and non-actors, Brady still, even though he's gone through similar uh, trauma in his life, but he's still laughing with his fiance on set, and then immediately I have to put him in the role and say, cry, action. You know, <laughs> he still has to act, even though he might be reenacting some stuff in his life. And uh, I agree. I think the film, you know, it's definitely my intention to have a lot of space in the film where... Uh, emotional space where people take away what they want to see through Brady's story. My job is to stay intimate to his struggles, and I think people will be able to take away whatever they need. And I do agree that it's uh, definitely have a more universal theme about how you have empathy, even for yourself, when you lose that one thing that you define yourself with. Because the relationships that Brady has in the film with Lane, with Lily, the sister, even with his father, are really very genuine and very loving. There's a lot of tension, there's a lot of struggle, but there's also a lot of love. I definitely see that out there, you know, in, in a community like Pine Ridge in South Dakota. There's a lot of struggle, you know, there's a lot of issues we deal with. But human beings are, at the end of the day, we see ourselves in each other. At the end of the day, we, we have to relate to each other that way. And that empathy come out of that. Brady is like that in real life as well. So when I first met him, that was part of the inspiration to capture that kind of genuine connection he has with everything around him, from nature to to a horse, to a wild horse, you know, to to the people around him. Well, and the horses play a big part because the relationship between Brady or human being and horse seems like a very elemental, very deep relationship that you really portray very beautifully. Thank you. A lot of people have also said that this film is part of a Western genre. Were you informed by this? I didn't see this at all, but, I mean, were you informed by the Western genre in making this? Well, I've seen two of them before I made The Rider. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen uh, four now, and I realize I've seen some good ones, you know, and I, I realize that I have more to catch up. But no, I don't think so. But the light is really beautiful. I mean, it's a very kind of very specific and very special light that you capture in the film. Well, because the Western genre, you know, from what I understood, is that you explore human beings' relationship with nature, with how nurturing but also how harsh the landscape is. Mm-hmm. And I think to stay true to Brady's relationship with nature, you're going to have some overlapping images and themes. 
You said at some point uh, about uh, making your own films that if you don't have money, and of course both of your feature films that you've made until now were made on, on limited budgets, that it enables you or forces you in some way to take risks. Yes, you have to either uh, work with limitation or let it work you. And what, what do you mean? Limitations are, you know, if you treat it like some obstacle and, and you know, you want to fight against it, it's going to fight back a lot harder and you're going to lose. But if you work with limitations and let it be your advantage and find what those limitations can provide you that actually you could turn it around. For us, for example, we might be limited in terms of crew members. We have six people crew shooting the rider, including me. And very little money. We have no money for buying a lighting package or renting a lighting package. But then instead of fighting against that, we look at the best light in the world, which is in the sky. And we completely schedule our shoot accordingly. It all depends where the sound is. And that turned out to be a style. And you said that you can't make films from an intellectual perspective. So what perspective do you make them from? It's more like a gut feeling, more like a connection with another person or a story. I can't go in with some kind of uh, thing I want to say. I have to feel like I can connect to this subject matter on a human level. What should people take away from watching the writer? On a personal level, I, I hope that you know people walk away even though they can't even accept Brady's way of life. But at least they would have compassion and they can understand why he is risking his life to live it. Well, it's very, very empowering and very eye-opening in so many different ways. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milos Stelic speaking with filmmaker Chloe Zhao, whose new film is called The Writer and which opens today. Thank you very much. Thank you. See the writer at the Music Box Theater and the AMC River East 21. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the International Voices Project. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, uh, where we let you know how to have an international good time. And our global citizen friend, Nari Safavi, is here. Nari's one of the founders of the Pasfarda Arts and Cultural Exchange, and he's going to give us a few suggestions about what to do to have an international good time. Nice to see you, Nari. Uh, good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. And we're first going to go to Afro-Brazilian music uh, of, uh, of Proyecto Art. Music Hall, uh, which is happening this weekend at the Constellation, Sunday, 8.30 p.m. This is a super fun, interesting instrument and music. I, we had these guys in about a year ago. Exactly. And uh, they 
Gregory Beyer, a, a professor at NIU, yeah. has created a universe of people who play the Birenbaum. Exactly. He brought the uh, concept of Birenbaum to Chicago, probably the first person to bring it over here. And now he's trained a group of people who play this, and they play it quite well. It sounds really interesting when you listen to it. And he's created the culture of Birenbaum, I guess, here in Chicago, and they have regular performances. And the instrument is like a gigantic bow. And if you go to the Projecto Arco Musical website, you will see them playing this thing, and they can really get jamming on it. And this is them performing in our studio a year ago. And here's a little bit of Projecto Arco Musical. Projecto Arco Musical. They'll be at Constellation in Chicago on Western Avenue Sunday at 8.30. And when you get like four or five or six of those bows going together at the same time, you really get a, a big jam going. Yeah, I guess. It's a, the sound becomes much bigger and it's actually quite, it can be quite a zen experience, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else do you have for us, Nari? Well, next uh, on, uh, on the next project, we're going to go all over the world, probably first through Syria. And this is an interesting project project that's been going on in Chicago for nine years, International Voices Project, and it has to do with globalizing the influences of theater here in Chicago. Patricia Acera is here. She's the founder and executive director of the International Voices Project. Great to see you. Nice to see you. Uh, Tell us where your idea for this came from and um, what you're doing here. I am a dual Italian-American, and I was producing in Rome 15 years ago, maybe, And I was having a conversation with Roman artists, and they commented that they didn't know that there was um, theater in Chicago, any, at which point I commented that we probably have more theater in Chicago than the entire country. (laughs) But but it occurred to me that there really wasn't a a genuine established exchange of uh, playwrights in place, playwrights' voices, and that really inspired me to move back to the States um, to begin this project. And what you're doing is readings. You do international readings and a whole bunch of them from playwrights all over the world. That's right. And this gives Chicago artists and audiences a a chance to uh, experience those plays with the goal of getting them into production. You work with different consulates and organizations that um, help foster the the dialogue. Absolutely. I kind of think of it as speed dating for contemporary plays and translation. (laughs) Well, that sounds like fun. Uh And and you work very closely with with the great Instituto Cervantes, which is your host and your primary venue for this one. They seem to have, you know, they have a mission for Spanish-speaking world, but uh, you collaborate with them very closely. Yeah, and they've really been great hosts to us and understand the global vision and really want to be a part of that. That's great. How do you pick the plays? Because if you've got the whole world of playwrights to go from, uh, you've narrowed it down this time to Spain, Serbia, Poland, Syria, Finland, French, Canada, India, and Germany. 
In the beginning, it was more difficult to find plays in translation, to get commissions. Now we have um, uh, we have translators in most major countries, most uh, continents who send us scripts. We work with national partners through an organization called Tint, which is Theater and Translation, 13 other companies around the country. The consulates now approach us directly. Um, and we work uh, locally with groups like Akvavit, Rasika, companies, Trapdoor, who are committed to work in translation. So it all kind of comes together piece by piece. We also look at what's going on uh, around the world. We look at the politics. We look at uh, social changes. And, and we look for plays that are responding to those changes. It sounds like you've built a community of people who really appreciate this. Absolutely. We do, we do have groupies, and we love our groupies, and they're at every reading. We're talking about the International Voices Project. They're getting, away, get, getting underway in May with their ninth season. Uh, Patricia Acera is the founder and executive director. You've brought a friend here, John Green. He's a professor of theater at Columbia College Chicago who's um, working on a play. Well, nice to meet you, John. Very nice to be here. Explain how you got involved with this, and your play is a very timely one. It's a Syrian play. Yes, um, we've Columbia College Chicago is is proud to have been associated with IVP since the second year. So we have traditionally um, staged readings of plays using our uh, theatre faculty, our theatre alums, um, to work in translation, uh, which is something that we don't often get to do during a normal academic year. This year it, we're doing something um, slightly different. Um, we're very proud to be producing. Uh, a play by Riyad Ismat, who comes from Syria. He is uh, he has a very very interesting past. He was uh, um, uh, the cultural commissioner in Assad's government, uh, and then managed to get out of Syria uh, before everything um, turned tragic turned tragically uh, wrong. And uh, his play um, focuses on. Um, the internal family conflicts that the Syrian tragedy has caused. Um, and so it's a, very, it's a very interesting insight into what happens with a particular family caught in the, literally in the crossfire of, of this, the Syrian um, civil war, if you like. Yeah, uh, it's a really, uh, uh, it seems like the, at these places around the world where there is these significant disruptions going mm -hmm. on of uh, ordinary life, it seems like the arts uh, in, in general and theater in particular becomes a venue for people to deal with their issues, the tragedies of their lives. I think so. And, and, that, and it seems to be, unfortunately, these kinds of tragedies seem to be uh, an impetus for production and creativity in these societies. Uh, and uh, it's really... Um, and how did you come across this play? And uh, you know what? Uh, you know, I mean, you said a little bit about the mm -hmm. about the writer and his position that he used to have. But uh, is this is this areas that you actually dig into, try to scout for new ideas uh, and new talents? In, in, and in, in this case, well, I think it's it's two things. I think firstly, um, thanks to Patricia, IVP itself has focused more and more on world issues. Like right. last year, very clearly the issue of refugees came through, either explicitly yeah. or implicitly, in most of the productions. All, all of them dealt in some way with outsiders and right. outsiders trying to find their way in life. Right. With this particular uh, piece, um, 
I had the pleasure of working with Riyadh on a production of uh, the great Persian epic, The Conference of the Birds. Oh, he, wow. he, he was my dramaturg. And then oh. getting to know him, he said, oh, I've, I've also written a number of plays. And I was reading, the, reading through his selection of plays that he'd given me. And this particular piece, partly because of its brevity, which felt it would fit into uh, the time slot for an IVP project, but also because of its focus meant that, and its topicality, sadly, um, meant that I felt that this would be a, a perfect fit for IVP as the series develops into one that has the confidence to look at, uh, as you say, global issues. And I think one of the joys of IVP is that we can just focus on the themes that the playwright gives us. It's, it's a reading. So although we lose the production element, we can focus clearly on this is what this playwright is preoccupied with at this point in history. Tell us a little bit more about this play, McBaj. It's a family and they're, I, I assume, on all sides of the conflict or something? Exactly that. It's, it's a family on all sides of the conflict and unable really to give away their position on, on, on the conflict. And, and it focuses on the mother trying to keep the family together as, as they are compromised by, by what is happening. Um, to say more, we'd give it all away, but uh, yeah. No talk politics at the dinner table. <laughs> right, right. Let's start right there. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald talking with John Green, professor of theater at Columbia College, Chicago, and he is working on McBaj, a, uh, one of the plays at the International Voices Project. Patricia Acera is here, founder and executive director, and Nari Safavi, of course, our uh, cultural guide on the uh, global act or um, <laughs> uh, weekend passport segment. Um, you're at Instituto Cervantes now, and it seems like a perfect venue for you guys. Uh, the, 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 the stage there, not too big, not too small, the same with the theater size. And in fact, we started the whole festival nine years ago at Cervantes. They were our first hosts. Wow. So it's great to be back there. Um, two years ago, we sat down with them. So every uh, summer I sit down with my, my cultural – my larger cultural partners, the ones I've been with for many years. And we talk about what projects we might do together and I sat down with Cervantes and they said, we love the festival. We would like you to bring it here. I said, the whole, the whole thing, that's, that's quite an undertaking. And they said, yeah, we feel like it's a great fit for our audiences. It's very centrally located for your audiences. And it would be a, a great dynamic. Which place from the Spanish-speaking world are you doing? We're doing uh, one. So we, we both years we have kicked off um, a play, uh, Spanish language or from Spain. Uh, and this year it's a play called Arizona. Okay. And Which is about Spaniards looking at the situation <laughs> in our U.S. Arizona from outside. Looking at right. the ideas. So the wonderful right. thing about someone looking at – issues in another culture is they can really focus on issues and not politics. What is the challenge? What is the real issue? And they can look at it poetically or symbolically without having to pointedly address it because they're outside looking in. The International Voices Project unfolds on Tuesday and Thursday nights throughout the month of May. Is that about the size of it? 
Uh, most Tuesday, Thursdays, we run May 1st through the 31st, and it gets a little wonky toward the end, but <laughs> roughly Tuesday, Thursday. And tell us about some of the other plays. You've got, uh, you've, we've, we've discussed two of nine more that there are. Or That's right. So we partner again with some of our um, regular partners with uh, Trapdoor, who's bringing a great Polish piece with an author they've worked with before. Akvavit is also repartnering. And Akvavit has been producing a lot of their work from the festivals. That's kind of exciting. Uh, Rasika has a great script called A Muslim in the Midst. Um, what's interesting this year, as I kind of look across it, a number of these plays are plays we've had for a couple of years. And now we're finally getting to do them. We love them, but then something mm-hmm. bumped them out of the rotation and we're getting to, to visit them. A great German piece um, that we're doing with Vitalist. So lots of intriguing stuff. But it always has a sort of political edge, a world consciousness, which is interesting. Do you feel like you know the international theater world better than anybody on the planet right now? I feel like (laughs) I know the challenges. And that's – knowing the challenges and being able to solve them are two different things. But I feel fully aware of it. And I imagine you just feel fully engaged in in what the planet is thinking about things. Absolutely. And now that more um, national partners here in the states get together and and exchange these plays and talk about them, I feel like we're entering into a larger family where the, the conversation can get more interesting. Well, I hope a lot of people get out and get to enjoy the International Voices Project. Patricia Sara is the founder and executive director of the International Voices Project. And John Green is professor of theater at Columbia College and worked with Syrian playwright uh, Riyad Ismet on his play McBaj at the International Voices Project. And when, when does that one go? Uh, that's May 10th. May 10th at the International Voices Project next Thursday. And thanks a lot to Nari Safavi, our global citizen, for another fine edition of Weekend Passport. It was great to be here again. Monday on Worldview, we will talk with more artists. And this one is a globally known, well-known guy. Ai Weiwei will be on the show Monday. He's doing a whole mess of things in town this weekend. He's at the Humanities Fest. He's doing an event on Monday night. And we will chat with him here on Worldview on Monday. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Mike Gilmore engineered. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.